So I've spent a week in, uh, in Utah. Oh, by the way, my name's Evan Rose. I'm moderating the uh, TED Talk uh, forum today. But I spent a week in Utah with a bunch of my Mountaineers friends, and we were doing canyons. And um, I was completely cut off from radio, TV, newspapers. And so when I got in my car, oh, yesterday, and turned on the radio and was listening to NPR, taking my, uh, my 12-hour drive back from Escalante, um, I became aware of a new issue. Um, and um, that was uh, uh, Trump's uh, recent video that was, that was released. And um, I wanted to do something fairly topical for our forum. And so I thought, what about morality in politics? And so I looked into that, and I found one by a guy named uh, Jonathan Haidt. And you may have heard of him. It's uh, H-A-I-D-T. Uh, he, he does some TED Talks. And he had one. This one goes back to 2008. And it's, um, it's looking at sort of five different um, uh, components of morality and how they play into people's political thinking. And I found it intriguing, and it's also not particularly um, what uh, uh, judgmental. It just sort of lays this out for you, and you can take it for what it's worth. And so what I want to do is have us watch this and then have a little discussion about it. And the video is about, I don't know, 18, 19 minutes long. So we'll spend about half our time watching the video and then another 15 minutes or so uh, chatting about it and talking about how it uh, uh, hit us, you know, what, what our impressions are, okay? Um, so, Elroy, you want to start the video for me? Okay. Um, is this one working? Um, so I, I thought I'd open this up to some discussion. Uh, if you just want to talk about your impressions, maybe how this relates to politics or maybe even how it works uh, with church structures, you know? Uh, do we um, go for those those three? You know, the, the more structural ones. Are we are we all about the the caring and um, oh, what was the other one? Um, harm, caring. Anyway, um, whatever you'd like to, to to talk, I'm just throwing it open to discussion at this point. So I just have a, a quick comment, and that is that um, these five moral uh, categories are um, supposedly uh, what uh, evolution uh, pushed us towards to make us successful as a species. And you hear people often say, and obviously it was very successful, um, and you often hear people say that your greatest strength is also your greatest weakness. So these uh, uniting people into a team is an incredible strength, but it also leads to xenophobia and things that um, in the end can be extremely harmful, World War II or war. Um, so I just think that's an interesting, uh, uh, an interesting fact. 
Thank you. I was kind of taken by that whole part about the, um, uh, the people who are generally conservative and look at structures realize that it's very hard to build and maintain a structure. <clears throat> and I, I think we see that, you know, in our church recently where we just put, you know, went out and got money for a new building. Uh, that, was a, that was a big struggle. We took a long time to come to that decision. And then it took a lot of effort to raise the money and actually build this place. And we, we did it, I think, um, from a view that was over on the left side of that chart as opposed to one on the right side of the chart. Um, our neighbors, I think, are probably more on the right side of that chart and really um, value structures as opposed to the independence. And, and I think this organization tends to go more for that independence. I'm so excited to see Jonathan Haidt here. But you, 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 I think we have to realize and should that there's a strength that comes from the structure and strength that we sometimes miss when we avoid it, when we leave it out. Uh, I, don't, I don't know quite where to go with that, uh, other than I, I think we ought to recognize that there, and as Jonathan Haidt, I think, suggested, there's wisdom in the position that society is delicate and that some structure helps it grow. So. I mean, you, you talked about them being our strengths, but also our weakness, our desire to be built into teams. But if we're trying to make the world a better place, then we can ask the question, given that humans want to be built into teams, given that those teams can then be rallied for good or for bad, how do you build a team? Or how, how, do, you, how do you make the world a better place? And maybe that involves building a team. Uh, and, and isn't that what the Unitarian Universalists are about? So I see all these bumper stickers, coexist, right? And they've got all these religious symbols on them. And what they mean is, uh, let's have lots of different teams that get along. The Unitarian Universalist is the only group I know of that says, let's build a team of the teams. Does that make sense? Where, where we, we come to a congregation where there's atheists and there's theists and there's Christians and there's Muslims and there's Jews, presumably, who would all be welcome here and we want to build a team out of all of them and say that we, we can rally around this set of principles, and you're welcome regardless of what you believe. And that's a really hard thing to do because we're changing the, the flag the team plants. But we're still presumably using some of that team rhetoric uh, to build a team of inclusiveness that rejects xenophobia. And uh, I think that's maybe why we shouldn't just stop going to church and, and just all get along but maybe it takes a team of people committed to the ideal of getting along to make it all work. Thank you. Yeah, one thing that struck me, I was looking at those graphs because I'm a scientist, I guess, but um, is on the right side, the, the spread of behavior was very, very small. Okay, very, very constant in general, the uh, worldview. And that rep represents to me stability. 
the idea of, you know, stably balancing your life and all these different things, which is good, and that's what society needs to some extent. But then on the right, left-hand side, we had this, this di- I won't call it divergence, but this huge swing, and it was always the same thing from what I could see. It was the same kind of concepts that were, you know, and I, the point I'm trying to make here, besides the observation, is that I think society moves forward when you have a large number of people that are committed to stability, because stability maintains a civilization, but you also have to have this other part, which is this group that is driven to change, and that the, the conservative element tends to keep trying to keep us on the straight and narrow, for lack of a better way of putting it, but that if both sides would recognize the strengths of both possibilities, in other words, the conservatives give us the the freedom and the um, the safety of going off in these tangents to look for a different way of doing things, but yet we rely upon them to sort of ground us more. And I think our biggest problem right now is that we've confused our roles and we don't respect each other's roles because we don't understand it ourselves. So, so building on that, um, the idea that uh, stability is really important to people who tend to be more conservative, um, perhaps that explains why um, Donald Trump has gotten so much uh, traction with his constant message that things are going to hell in a handbasket in this country, that crime is through the roof and, and um, you know, our jobs are leaving, blah, blah, blah. Um, and people, that really resonates with a lot of people um, who, who view stability as you know, the, the most important, important thing. On the other side of things, um, you know, Hillary Clinton and, and uh, Bernie Sanders are more saying, well, you know, things aren't, we can do better, but, but it's, it's not as bad as, as, as Donald Trump would lead you to believe. I, th- I think the trouble with conservatives are, uh, particularly in the United States, is that they're a little too rigid in their viewpoints. Uh, they're not <clears throat> really open-minded enough to uh, look at the other side and see, well, maybe changes. Uh, some changes are good. And uh, unfortunately, that's kind of what we've seen in the politics recently, is people are just maybe on both sides, a little too rigid in their viewpoints. So one of the things that we haven't talked about but really struck me was that game that, um, that Jonathan showed us where the game really went downhill without punishment. And I think that that is a very... Um, what a hot button issue with people you know when do you punish people when do you go and shame people and and i think uh that is something people are often very reluctant to even even discuss um and so uh you know a a simplistic example is when we go out and we do our pledges we keep our pledges secret so nobody knows what anybody else is giving um, you know, we're, we, we bend over backwards to make sure we avoid that sort of shaming and punishment in this organization. 
Uh, does anyone have any insights they'd like to, to share or, or thoughts on the punishment aspect of the morality? Yeah, I think the, we have to be conscious and accept that that exists, that, there, that the idea of punishment, unfortunately, as foreign as that sounds to me, you should be good because you're, it's the right thing to do. A lot of people, that's evidently not true. So maybe the thing to do is to show people that the punishment isn't from an organization. It's from, like, like take climate change, for instance, or famine and whatever, okay? People have to realize that, that climate change, for the vast majority of people, is going to be horrible. And so tr trying to prove that, I think a lot of people, as you said, they, they deny because the truth of, of, and it's not just climate change, it's, it's, it's most things in our lives. We don't want, even if we're, we're liberal, we don't want to believe that things are the way they are. And it takes a lot of courage and a lot of introspection to reach that stage where you say, okay. And I think that's where this thing about looking outside is important because, you know, I'm, by definition, I'm not always right. And we have to start from there and try and look for the truth. So, so with the religious uh, aspect, I, I think of things like original sin. Is man born basically, you know, bad, as it were? Or, um, or free will? Okay, and so how does this punishment aspect play into that? Um, and, and I think different religions have completely different takes on that. Um, and, and so you find maybe whole groups that are doing that. And, and I wonder how within those organizations that people are born into, how people manage to cope with, with the different, you know, different levels of, of what I would call that punishment index. Um, oh, Mike. It's an in interesting to think of it in, but the, from the perspective of a teacher. So I struggle with this at UNMLA. I try to give every opportunity to be forgiving to students who don't do their homework. And I once had this idea that, well, the consequences come at the end of the semester. You're going to fail the course. But it seems to me that the majority of people don't, are not motivated by that consequence at the end of the semester. They need some motivation right now. And I think there are analogies there in religion that, uh, that an immediate feedback, an immediate consequence is different from a consequence way down the road. It's the same with child rearing. If you've, you, that there has to be a consequence for breaking that lamp right now. You know, six months down the road, it doesn't do any good. So what, what does the universalist do with the concept of punishment anyway? So, and, I, and that, that's a question. I mean, obviously I have some thoughts, but they, I don't, they aren't finished. Uh, so I, I'm willing to have some feedback. But um, what I reject of the uh, non-universalism position was this idea of John Edwards of an eternal burning fire for all, all time and all eternity. Uh, I don't think a loving God creates us in order to roast us. So either there isn't a God or, or he doesn't do that. Uh, because by definition, that's not a God, that's a devil. Um, 
but does that mean he doesn't punish us, he or she doesn't punish us at all? And the answer to that, I think, uh, and again, whether you believe in God or not, this is still an interesting question. What would a, what would a being who was who worthy of worship be like? And you mentioned parenting, and I think parenting was the best analogy I could come up with. And I came to the conclusion that um, there's a couple ways I can raise Sammy, and one of them is with no punishment at all. And I tried it because he should do the right thing because he should do the right thing and because he loves doing the right thing and he's a good kid. And you know what? It doesn't work. <laughs> and you said punishment is completely foreign to you. Uh, but, you know, as, as, I know what you meant, but, but as a parent, it's not. I mean, yeah, you, what I discovered is that humans are flawed to the point where we need sometimes a little bit of punishment. But, but if you love somebody like I love my son, the way I punish him is shaped by that love, and it's certainly not an eternal roasting. Uh, and 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 it's it's a punishment that always has a goal, you know. I don't want him to run out into the street and get hit by a car, so I punish him and tell him no, and he gets in trouble when he runs out in the street without looking, because I'm, my goal is to teach him to look so he doesn't get run over and die. Um, and you know, my ultimate goal is to reduce suffering for my son and for the world, not not to create it out of a sense of of divine justice, where where this 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 act requires this this suffering added to it to, to kind of balance some cosmic scale. I just don't believe in that. But, but that doesn't mean I don't ever punish. And the fact of the matter is we live in a world where there are people who will do bad things to other people. And I think a world without a criminal justice system at all is a world where order would break down. And I am a political liberal today because I believe in social justice and, and gay marriage and things like this, but emotionally, when I listen to Jonathan Haidt, I'm a conservative uh, because I, I think I understand and, and value the sort of stability that he talked about in that TED Talk we just watched. That That's something that resonates with me, and if you look at the French Revolution, you find out what a desire to change, coupled with no desire to, for social cohesion, produces. Uh, and so every desire to have a liberal uh, let's change the world because it's not good like it should be, has to be tempered with a little bit of, yes, but let's not destroy it in the process because we don't really know what a new change is going to produce. And so we, and, and that, that doesn't mean we should never change, but it means there has to be tension between these two concepts. And if we go all the way to one side or the other of that idea, we go nuts. And you know, that doesn't mean in today's political culture one side isn't too far to one side that needs, you know, but there has to be tension. And even as we walk off and say we need to change things, I think we ought to do it with, with some concept of that it needs to be changed in a gradual way where societal cohesion is maintained somehow. Uh, back to that graph of um, conservatives and, and liberals' um, moral positions, the five... Uh, lines he drew. Um, I guess a couple of questions and I had was how do liberals end up getting spread out so much more than conservatives? What what sort of brings that about all across different cultures? Um, the other one though, which sort of surprised me, was if you if you give each of those places a weight and you total them up the total for the conservatives would be higher 
than the total for the liberals. Um, and it makes me think about that thing that I've read that says that conservatives donate more to charities than liberals do um, as a percentage of their income. Um, so it just it makes me wonder if having all of those um, traits clumped together at a relatively high level compared to the total for liberals um, gives um, some moral stability that that we struggle with. Obviously, I am a, a liberal, um, but it's just, um, I think that uh, the order um, and team and all of that that conservatives are good at um, may give them certain advantages. It's just, it's just thinking, I guess, thinking out loud here. So I just like to, to mention that they put a numerical value on on these different aspects, and depending on how you scale that, you can make that graph look completely different. Okay, so there's, you know, they have this sort of zero to five on each of these aspects, and somehow they score them to put them in, to make those graphs. So the only thing I come away with is the trending, because the fact that it's clustered, I could re um, rescale that and make. Uh, everything on the on the left side cluster and every and things diverge on the right side, so I, I don't know how much of that is an artifact of the way they decided to do the scoring and how much of that is real. So you know, how do you measure compassion? You know, am I am I a three compassion? Am I a four? Am I a five? Um, so just just to throw that in there. Right. Right. And, and, and I always look for, you know, being a scientist, you kind of look for artifacts of the system that you're using. Does someone else have a... Oh, so uh, back to that punishment factor. I think one graph is missing. There should be three. The third one is what would it look like with rewards? Okay. All right. Um, so we're nearing the end. Uh, does anyone have a have another comment they'd like to to do before we finish? Okay. Um, so th thank you all for coming this morning and engaging in this discussion. And uh, I hope it helps you going forward and uh, maybe gets us out of the rut here of of our our current arguments uh, in the political system. And we'll we'll see where that takes us. Lewis, you want to say one more thing? I just had a question, uh, Evan. Uh, what does TED stand for? My wife asked me this, and I said, well, you know, I can't oh, yeah. answer that. And then Joyce Nichols, I saw her yesterday, and she said, well, Lewis, what does TED stand for? And I said, well, I'll have to ask Evan tomorrow. Uh, who knows that off the top of their head? <laughs> Technology, education, design. Okay. Yeah. Is it an organization that meets all the time? Um, I think it started as, as a central centralized thing, and other organizations have picked it up. So there are things like TEDx. There's a TED Radio Hour. Uh, it's really caught on. And the whole idea was to have a very succinct, sort of uh, within 20 minutes, discussion of a, of a single topic so that you could sit there and get something that was really distilled. And instead of an hour-long lecture that may, may be ramble, it was all about here. 
here's here's uh, cogent speaking, and and here's your idea. Design. The D is design. Yeah. All right. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.